0: People keep looking it's like, oh, well, we're not losing the Hispanic vote because we're not at 50% yet. It's like, yeah, four years ago, six years ago, you were getting 70%. And now you're like, 58 is not bad? Like, no, that's bad. <laughs> As Democrats, it's really bad.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslin. We've been talking a lot about the realignment of Hispanic voters on the podcast. It's a shift that's been going on for years but has really come to a head in this election cycle. And I wanted to dive into the conventional wisdom around Hispanic voters and what the flaws are in that thinking. What's being missed? What are the assumptions about voting blocks that are going to get overturned in November? What do practitioners need to know now to adjust to the realignment that's happening? And I have three incredible guests to help us unpack this. They're all numbers guys. Joining us for the first time on Politicology is Rui Teixeira, He's a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Before joining AEI earlier this year, he was a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress for nearly two decades. He's a leading expert in the transformation of party coalitions and the future of American electoral politics. He holds a Ph.D. and M.S. in sociology from the University of Wisconsin, Madison, and has appeared on CBS News, CNN, NPR, MSNBC, and PBS, and been published in The Atlantic, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Post. He's also a co-creator of The Liberal Patriot on Substack. Rui, thanks for making the time today. Welcome to Politicology.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Also joining us, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Our good friend, Mike Madrid, who's also working on a book about the Latinization of America. Mike, welcome back. How are you doing?
0: Thanks for having me. I, I hope this is a three or four hour episode because <laughs> this is like a great, great group of minds here. I'm looking forward to this. And last but not least, Scott Tranter. Scott is the former director
1: of data science for Marco Rubio's run for president. He's also an investor and advisor to Decision Desk HQ and an adjunct professor at American University where he teaches quantitative and qualitative research in the School of Communication. Scott, it's great to see you again, uh, all of 24 hours later, after our last (laughs) State of the Vote episode. Welcome back.
3: Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's that time of the season. We're talking about all the stuff I know about. Give it a couple months, I won't know anything.
1: I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time um Mike ever since you and I started talking about your many years of studying this trend um and uh, when we when we thought you know we should really have a deep dive into the subject uh Rui Teixeira was exactly who we wanted to join us and um and Scott Tranter who's uh, who's running the decision making operation really for some of the biggest names in media when it comes to election results and final decisions on races, so I couldn't think of a better trio to put together. So, um, Rui, why don't you kick us off here and explain the, the your personal background, your journey to this moment, what you spend your days thinking about, and uh, and sort of what is so um, transformational about what's happening to the American uh, electorate?
2: Sort of my my history that's really relevant to this podcast goes back to the book I wrote with John Judas, The Emerging Democratic Majority, which came out in 2002, in which we argued that the transformation the country was going through, economic, ideological, and race-ethnic, was going to create a relatively favorable terrain for Democrats, which if managed right and sensibly give them a real leg up you know, in, in elections for quite a long time to come. Um, and that might create a Democratic majority that really had some legs to it. So um, I think the first observation to make about that is yes, it did become very well known and very popular as an analysis, but <laughs> kind of the moment people uh, heard about it, they managed to oversimplify it and boundlerize it to the point where it's barely recognizable. So uh, I think the thing that people most took away from it is the idea. Uh, that you know the focus we put on the changing racial composition of the United States, which is gradually but inevitably replacing white voters with non-white voters in particular, uh, and and especially replacing white non-college voters, that that was some sort of read on how inevitable uh, the transformation in the electoral landscape would be. Left out almost everything else we said, and one thing we said in particular was very important, which was immediately ignored was there's no way you can put together this majoritarian coalition without retaining a very strong, at least minority of the white working class vote because the white working class vote is so big (laughs) and it's big in a lot of states that Democrats really need to do well at well over 50% and places in the Midwest. So um, the the thesis was was definitely uh, importantly connected to the idea Democrats could retain Uh, a fair amount of their historic white working class support, even if they did experience some attrition. Um, And that was pretty much ignored. And uh, I feel like uh, in my time at the Center for American Progress, I spent an enormous amount of time trying to convince people to take that part of the analysis more seriously. Uh, You know, at the same time as I was documenting the, the transformation of the electoral landscape, I was also documenting you know the fundamental Achilles heel of the Democratic coalition, which was doing poorly among white non-college voters, especially in certain areas of the country, and that made their their coalition fundamentally extremely vulnerable. Um, in fact, if you look at the 2008 Obama coalition, it really was the fruition in some ways of a lot of the trends we talked about in the book, but also, again, widely ignored. He did relatively well among white non-college voters. He, he really approved a lot over, over someone like John Kerry uh, or Al Gore. So um, that was just not completely understood at all. Then 2010, you know, the roof falls in on Democrats, again, driven mostly by white non-college voters. 2012, Obama manages to get reelected. And again, it's ignored that he managed to actually like claw back a lot of those white working class voters from uh, you know, from from the Republicans in the twenty twelve election, running on the auto bailout and a sort of populist uh, stance against Mitt Romney, um, and I just even then I was starting to get increasingly disturbed about how hard it was to make the argument that this was important. It was kind of like if you talked about the white working class, that was sort of borderline racist. And isn't isn't it the case anyway that the change in the Racial composition of the United States would just go to overwhelm all that stuff. And uh, you know, I could see for my own analysis and my own calculations that that was not necessarily the case. You could easily lose more from white nine college voters than you could possibly make make up in terms of changing racial composition just on a, you know, looking at the change in the probable share of voters. Um, also, of course, that assumes that you're going to keep all of those voters. Who are part of these, you know, evolving racial blocks? Uh, you know, we can already, as as everybody knows, it's a little silly uh, and and uh, sort of inaccurate to to dump everyone who says they have some Hispanic descent into a Hispanic block. But it is useful for st- statistical purposes. And you know, it clearly was the case since Hispanics were the leading edge of the changing racial composition of the United States, the primary non-white group that was replacing whites. If they're uh, you know, support did not remain steady. That that's also another thing chipping away at this idea. There's some inevitable demographic transformation uh, of the United States that would produce an inevitable political transformation. So I think all this comes to a head in 2016 when Trump wins against all expectations. And I just had knockdown, dragout fights with people on the left and people within Cap about. How should we interpret this? Because I think the default interpretation of people in those political spaces was, well, okay, Trump was a racist, xenophobic candidate. So, of course, everybody who voted for him was motivated by racism and xenophobia, and they're they're hopeless anyway. So why should we worry so much about that? I mean, there's nothing that can be done. They're not part of this evolving, multicultural, multiracial America. They're being left behind. Their status is being threatened. That's what it's all about. And I tried to argue that, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. If you look at who these voters were and where they live, the thing, other things that might be motivating the at that Trump campaigned on in terms of trade and manufacturing and the economic transformation of the country that was leaving a lot of people behind, they felt he was on their side. And it wasn't just a matter of, uh, you know, he was uplifting white people and oppressing black and brown people. But really, this was a default setting in progressive circles. And I just thought it was, A, wrong as interpretation, and B, really wrong as a political strategy. It's just the numbers weren't going to add up if you kept on down that path. So, uh, you know, I also noted at the time, as a number of other people did, that wasn't it a little funny that, uh, you know, that the Hispanic vote didn't, like, spike the way people thought it would? In, uh, in 2016? I mean, if he was so bad, Trump was so bad and so xenophobic and hated immigrants, wasn't it the case that everybody of an immigrant or immigrant background would automatically reject them and the Democrats would see their margins expand by 10 points? Of course, that didn't happen. That was a flag right there. Okay, fast forward to 2020, and this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of a lot of this analysis. Um, Biden radically underperformed his polls. He radically underperformed with Hispanics. He underperformed also with Black voters, but not as much. But the Hispanic shift was remarkable. Uh, You know, it was like 16 margin points, 16, 17 margin points across the country as a whole, much greater in a lot of states. It was, you know, sort of very strong, almost all Hispanic ethnicities, you name it, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Dominican, you know, Venezuelan, Central American, it didn't matter. I mean, it was most most prominent in South Florida, South Texas, but it was literally all over the country. It was in Latino neighborhoods in Philadelphia, Milwaukee, New York, Chicago, everywhere. So this was like amazing. And and who are these voters who were deserting the Democrats uh, in a relative sense? It was working class Hispanics primarily, according to my analysis and that of some others. Um, So this therefore raised the question of what was going on with these voters. And I felt very strongly at the time that a lot of what was driving this was the Democrats' inability to connect to these voters on a cultural and, to some extent, economic level in terms of their everyday lives. Democrats seemed to be very much consumed with a lot of boutique issues around cultural change that they felt obliged to press, to defund the police stuff. And the summer of 2020 was, of course, a complete disaster for the Democrats. The racialization of everything was a disaster for the Democrats. And importantly, the racialization of everything didn't seem to help very much with Hispanic voters, who are, of course, people of color according to the standard locution. Um, well, so there, there's some, There's that tells us something. I mean, the market is the political marketplace is sending us some signals here about what Hispanic voters really care about. As I've noted, and I think people here would agree, they're a patriotic, upwardly mobile, family-oriented, community-oriented, economy-oriented group of voters who were giving the democrats a lot of their votes not just cuz democrats were viewed as being more friendly to immigrants but because they saw democrats as being on their side and not culturally alien from them even if they were a bit more liberal those things both changed i think in 2020 the democrats became associated with not just the cultural stuff but i think also with not reopening the economy with uh, being against resource extraction jobs you know sort of public security jobs um a lot of things that Hispanics care a lot about <laughs> And especially Hispanic working class people who needed to get back to work. And I think that um, Democrats are way too complacent about that. And now we see in the current campaign cycle, Democrats are viewed as being complacent on inflation, a lot of things that are eroding the standard of living of a lot of Hispanics, especially Hispanic working class people. And not to put too fine a point in it, but it does not seem like Democrats have really become much more moderate on cultural issues. If anything, it's the reverse. Democrats seem ever more entrenched in their cultural liberalism and radicalism, which is driven fundamentally by liberal coastal elites and you know, sort of the, the elites within and outside the party and including in the media, nonprofits, advocacy groups, foundations, and so on. So, uh, so that's, that was my, my take on things as it was evolving. What was a place where that stance was not appreciated? Well, one place was the Center for American Progress. But you could more broadly say, on the institutional center left, a lot of these interpretations were anathema. It was all, you know, all anti-Trump, all you know, anti-racism, all you know, anti-transphobia, all the time. Um, and I thought this was really remarkably disconnected from where a lot of voters in the country were coming from. Again, particularly Hispanic voters. Which you know, if you're going to stop the bleeding among these voters, how are you going to do it? You're not going to do it this way. So I definitely felt like on a wide variety of issues, crime, immigration, uh, you know, the sort of changes that are taking place in the schools, race and gender issues, and even on uh, the relationship with the economy, to a lot of these voters Democrats seem to care about. I just didn't feel like I could speak my mind, and nobody was doing research that was pertinent, I thought, to try to really unpack these issues. Um, and I think that's just a reflection of not just CAP, but Uh, you know, all the institutional spaces within the center left. There are certain things you can talk about, and there are certain things you can't talk about. And the things you can talk about involving essentially agreeing (laughs) with the party line on a variety of these different issues. And if you're actually raising fundamental questions about those issues and the strategies that flow from them, uh, you're not really welcome in these spaces. And it's very easy to get, you know, type, very easy for people to make criticisms of you as being you know, sort of clueless, uh, racist, transphobic, sexist, um, and generally sort of, you know, quasi-Trumpist, if you allow, as there might be something to, uh, you know, the appeal of Trump to, to working-class voters. i to give people a, a, a sort of a picture, a snapshot of why I evolved away from what I took to be the uh, stance of the institutional center-left, a lot of the center of gravity of the Democratic Party and found a better home at the American Enterprise Institute, which, even though it leans right, there's a lot of people there I disagree with on a lot of things, and you particularly in economics. By God, it's a think tank. They let you do your work, they give you the resources to do it, they encourage debate and discussion, um, and nobody gets canceled. Hey, that's a beautiful thing. We should have more of that in more spaces around the country. So I think it's very much to the to AI's credit that are willing to take me on and encourage that kind of conversation, because they know I'm not you know, I'm a diehard Republican. I'm not, I wouldn't describe myself as a conservative, but I am in my own modest way, seeking the truth about what's going on uh, in this country.
1: That's exactly uh, what we're here to do. Thanks Rui for that. There's, um, you know, Mike, I saw you nodding along there. And one of the things that uh, Rui really just reminded me of is our conversation, I think it was maybe almost a year ago now, probably about nine months ago now when we sat down and did a, did a, a deep dive specifically on the Latino vote. And one thing that stuck with me from that conversation was the way you characterized uh, Hispanics not identifying with the racial grievance politics uh, that they hear from the left because they don't identify as a racially aggrieved minority. And I'd love for you to I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything that Rui just laid out and um, maybe reprise that for us. Um, Before you do, Rui, there's one question I had for you because, you know, everybody here, I think can relate to having uh, left the in-group or the tribe uh, as it were um, because of your own conscience and, and, um, and Um, truth-seeking. But one question I have really is, is sort of institutional, I guess, uh, from, where you hail from and and that is whether the resistance that you were met with was um, was it a a product of the personnel at the organizations that you were working in and around um, being sort of disconnected from the democratic majority, or was it more ideological uh, resistance to what the implications of your findings would dictate to um, policy and campaign issues?
2: Well, I think it's actually, it's pretty hard to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the personnel front, uh, clearly part of what's influencing a lot of these institutions is sort of the younger cohorts who are coming into these institutions, the junior staff, who are, you know, who are very self-selected uh, you know, drivers, tend to be quite liberal, quite low, quite Wedded to a certain kind of politics that uh, makes them try to pull the the organization they're part of in a certain direction. Um, the people at the top of these organizations—it's always a complex issue—but it's some combination of them becoming more comfortable with the drift of the party to the cultural left, and also just not wanting to stand up to these you know whippersnappers, right? It just—they cause a lot of problems. I mean, they're quite aggressive in terms of pushing a lot of this stuff. So to to keep peace in the Valley and keep the funds flowing because that's another part of it, follow the money, of course, where do a lot of these places get their money? It's from people who are donating it, foundations are donating it who also have a similar point of view. So, um, So there's a lot of personnel type drivers here, I think, but it's also, you know, it's a driver partly because of the ideology that's behind it. These junior staffers, these younger cohorts have absorbed a certain kind of ideology uh, some of the people in the party, uh, infrastructure, absorb this ideology, and even the people you know who are calling the shots at the top of these organizations, at or the top of the party, I think really have you know become much more invested in that, at least a soft version of this woke ideology, if we can call it that. I mean, it's like cognitive dissonance. You can't <laughs> you can't keep on saying stuff you know forever without starting to at least halfway believe it. So I think when yeah, you know, everybody in 2020 was saying the summer of 2020 was saying America's a white supremacist society shot through with racism, which you can, you know, find under every rock and in every organization. Um, some people may have been mouthing those words, but after a while, I think you kind of come to believe it a little bit. And also you realize that, you know, you've now invested in this. And if you start to make a break from it, all hell will break loose. So you know, there's there's sort of a a sort of reinforcing cycle, I think, between personnel and ideology that that has really caused a lot of problems for the Democrats at this point. The extent, where as a number of people have, have observed, and I agree. I mean, there's they tend to live in kind of a bubble. They're really like um, detached from uh, you know the the concerns and the views and the complicated views of your everyday American, your median voter. Include, of course, your median Hispanic vote. Do these people run around thinking those kinds of thoughts and walking on eggshells so they don't, you know, sort of uh, contradict the official ideology that Demo- a lot of Democrats seem now to, to endorse? Of course, they don't. <laughs> their concerns are much more mundane, and their their thoughts are much more complicated. And they don't appreciate being told or having it implied that if they don't think in a certain way. They're sort of part of the, you know, part of the problem, part of the. The fading America, part of you know, not the good people. I mean, people hate that stuff.
1: All right, Mike. Um, can you can you remember that conversation? I'd love for yeah. you to sort of first of all respond, react to everything that Rui just laid out for us, and and um, and in particular, the way you characterized in that conversation was so helpful to me. So I'd love to have that sort of for listeners right in this conversation as well, and then I'd love to hear the way you see the the trend that um, that Rui just laid out for us.
0: Well, I, I was just listening uh, to, to Rui is, is why, you know, I was excited about this conversation. And I think I think that people are going to really appreciate this because spending some time with it isn't just to kind of delve into, into some of the intricacies of what's happening today. It's really defining what identity means to us as Americans going forward and, and how important that is or, or is not. And there's, there's a part of America, this sort of, you know. Uh, and I think there's a demographic reason for this, why the Democrats are behaving the way that they are, right? They're, they're rapidly consolidating college-educated voters, largely white voters, largely coastal voters, driving this narrative and kind of trying to to, and trying to find solutions to, to these problems, which, while they exist, aren't necessarily top of mind for the fastest-growing segment of, of the electorate, right? And there's this, there's this sort of stilted view that somehow – if you're not white, that we can we can kind of segment you on different gradations of of how a person of color's oppression can be ameliorated, right? There's a sort of hierarchy of oppression that we somehow need to to address, and and that's problematic when 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 a large swath of those people either don't feel that, don't relate to that, or prioritize things far in front of that, and so you know in many ways what I think. Rui's experience professionally is, is not un, unlike kind of what I've dealt with and, and many Latinos have dealt with kind of kind of uh, personally and through our own professional experience too, which is you, we are emerging as, a, as, a, as the largest ethnic you know, non-Hispanic white group in America very quickly with a very different understanding of, of what those issues on race, ethnicity, and, and class mean. And I think the, the most basic way to understand this is that you know Latinos Hispanics are the fastest growing segment of the working class in America at a time when one of the greatest gaps between Republicans and Democrats is this separation between the working and professional class, right? And 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 it's correlates to so many of these divisions. And so when I began this journey of research to try to understand what this meant was. You know, as an undergraduate student, you know, coming from Southern California, Southern California, Mexican kid, uh, I went to Georgetown, finished my undergraduate work there and started to realize that even the whole discussion of race, now this is back in the 1990s, there was no understanding of nuance in the way that Americans discuss race. It's either black and white. Yeah, you know, and, and Republicans too often would say, well, why can't you just all become Americans, right? Let's just not be hyphenated, which is, which is in some way kind of saying, well, oh, can't you just all be, let's just all be white, Right and 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 for Democrats, it was it was the exact opposite. It was like, you know, we we have to really emphasize our differences here. And for Hispanics specifically, um, th- there's a lot of middle ground there. There are there is a segment of Hispanics who identify primarily with their Hispanic identity. There's a much larger swath that don't identify, you know, w- with it. and 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 less and less, so as we as we move along generationally, as we move away from the immigrant experience. In many ways, we're undertaking the same characteristics that other immigrant groups in the past have. And for me, back in the 90s, 1990s, the real question, which was influenced very heavily by, by an academic and researcher by the name of Peter Skerry, who wrote a book called Mexican Americans, the Ambivalent Minority, was this fundamental question. And that question was Will Hispanics, Mexican Americans specifically, and one quick caveat, by the way, was we're talking about this Latinization of America. It's overwhelmingly Mexican-American. It's by far the fastest growing group. When we look at it in practical terms, you know, of all the 20 house seats, virtually every one of them that's competitive is a result of Mexican-American identity. And, and we're seeing these large separations in public opinion between Cubans, especially now. On most issues, it's not just that Republican or, or, you know, they're Republican and they're in South Florida, Miami-Dade. It's like on most major questions, Cubans are really not reflective of the overall Hispanic population anymore, which begs the question of on, on if they're, if Hispanic is even an appropriate term anymore. Uh, but Cubans, are, you know, Cubans are basically, they're four or five percent of the Hispanic vote. But we, 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 we've kind of blown them up because of their positioning in the party, their position as an influential voting bloc in South Florida, as determinative in the elections, that somehow that this is the opinions of this community are pervasive and expansive when they're really they're really not. And that's not to diminish the Cuban-American experience. It's really to try to put in perspective how unique and how narrow it is, not just ideologically, but geographically. But the question, the fundamental question that that, that I've been pursuing over years of, of doing this was, Are Latinos, are Hispanics going to emerge as an aggrieved racial minority the way that our African-American brothers and sisters have, or or will we continue down a path of of the traditional immigrant aspirational middle-class trajectory that has defined immigrant groups so commonly in our own American mythology? Which, Which is it going to be? And the answer is, it, it's really kind of both, which is, which is it, it, it leans from my perspective, has always le- led more through an economic lens than it has been a racial lens. But it's undeniable that that is a part of it. Um, and, and class issues are, are things that we really don't talk about in American politics as much as we should, because we immediately fall back to the old tools that we have, which is, this is really about race. And there is a strong correlation between race and class in America. I mean, the class I teach is race, class, and partisanship. It's really, it's really the intersection of all three of these things, right? What, what does that mean? But the, the Democrats' idea of believing that Latinos are essentially an aggrieved racial minority is proving to not be true. It has been pro- been proving untrue for some time. I will be you know, candid in saying, when I was very involved in Republican campaigns and Rui's book comes out, it started to explain a lot of things for me too, in part, why California especially was not following this traditional assimilative pattern that we are now seeing nationally. California, in many ways, the largest Hispanic state, has proven to be the exception and not the rule. And I wanted to spend time understanding that because what was happening, especially in California and in Arizona was giving credence to a lot of the people that were reading Rui's work in a very crass way as he, as he outlined, they, you know, they, weren't, they weren't reading the substance. they were kind of reading the headlines on, on the reviews of it and saying, well, you know America is going to become like California once there's enough Latinos. And that's not the right way to look at it, right? But that, that's thats the way I think that the, the national narrative developed. And I think for those of us that were close observers always knew that it wasn't true. It's just it was happening so slow during my career. I was starting to question it and saying, well, maybe it is more of a racial identity model that these people are saying, as opposed to this, this economic mainstreaming and assimilating that we've seen in the past that, that I've been subscribing to since the 90s. And then lo and behold, um, we start to see Hillary Clinton's numbers drop pretty precipitously from Barack Obama's. And then Biden's numbers drop even more. And it's not just that they were declining for Democrats, it's that they were were increasing for Donald Trump. (laughs) Of all people, it's like Donald Trump. So what is going on? Like this narrative of 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 racism driving all of it, I think quantifiably, or at least anecdotally, was proving untrue. And I I think now we're finally at this point where people are starting to genuinely ask, what is this? What is happening? And I think for, for, for people like Rui, who's been looking at it for decades, for myself, who's been looking at it for decades, there is kind of this aha moment right now where you can finally have discussions like this because the math means that what we're talking about is going to define the health of our democracy going forward, the health of the public discourse going forward, the nature of our American identity and the way we view race and class and partisanship is going to be defined in the next 10, 20 years in a way that I, I think is really going to be dramatically different than what we've experienced in the past. And we've got to have a healthy way of discussing it, or it could be toxic uh, for American, the the American idea, for America, the American experiment, and the, and this idea that a pluralistic democracy can actually work.
3: I just wanted to add something to what Mike said. So he and I both. Well, I think you grew up in California. I grew yeah. up in Southern California and spent all my life there. And you you always have to learn a little bit of Spanish to uh, to get around. Um, and I you know got my polit- start in politics there as well. And then I remember doing one of my first campaigns this is before I worked for Marco Rubio in South Florida. And um, I got educated pretty quickly on the difference between being Hispanic in Southern California versus being Hispanic Mm -hmm. in South Florida. (laughs) Um, And it made a lot of sense to me. And then, you know, as I've done more and more campaigns and I look at a lot of data, my favorite district to look at is Texas 23. It's on the border of South Texas. It's been going back and forth, Republican and Democrat congressional, for the last 15 years. Um, it was Trump in 2020. It was Beto O'Rourke in 2018. It was Clinton in 2016. It's 60% Hispanic. One in 10 voters, apparently or theoretically, are born outside of the United States. Um, and it flips back and forth. And if you've ever done a focus group down there, which is, you know, it's qualitative, so I'm a quantitative guy, but it's interesting. Um, you know those people. They, they 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 don't like the label Republican or Democrat. They 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 go on values and things like that. And it's a little bit interesting because when you hear the values, and if you're someone who's astute to us, you'd be like, they're a Republican. They wouldn't <laughs> admit it, but they're a Republican. Or. Oh, that's pretty democratic, even though they voted for Donald Trump, you know, one of those types of things. And I think that's interesting when you look at the representatives who represented them, you know, the Henry Bonilla's or the Kiko Canseco's or the Gallego's or, 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 you know, those types of things, They're, they're very throwing the labels off and they're very issue oriented. Um, and you know, they don't like to label those issues. And I think that's a great way to look at the lens of, of how ma- I, malleable is the wrong word, but at least the Hispanic voting block, and there'll probably be a couple of people upset that, you know, Cuban Americans who don't like it, but the, 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 the non-white Hispanic voting block there is, um, especially in the first and second and third generation, they they're, they're not. All Democrat are not all Republican, and we can look at districts in Miami and look at how they vote. We look at districts in South Texas and how they vote, and we look at districts in California and how they vote. And they would all qualify under that non-white Hispanic, and they all vote very differently, um, and they're very issue-oriented. And so to look at them in a monolith, it, the data just doesn't support it, especially when you get up close with the qualitative stuff and you start asking these people what they believe in. Um, it's interesting to me. It is a very nuanced community.
1: So we started talking about having this conversation back in July when Quinnipiac put out polling numbers that looked very, very bad for Biden and Democrats. And his approval rating was uh, at a low of 31%. And what jumped off the page was Biden's approval among Hispanic people was at 19%. Um, And uh, that was June. Quinnipiac's polling had Biden approval rating at 33%, but 29% of Hispanics approved. So it had really cratered in July. I'm wondering what you guys saw in that movement. Um, Scott, do you have thoughts?
3: Um, I, I think it's directly related to the economy, and you and I have talked about this before. The number one issue um on voters' minds as of this week, based on most of the public polling out there, it's inflation, which I think is a derivative of the economy. Um, and inflation, primarily this the, the stuff we're talking about, not like how much does it cost to say to Ritz Carlton in South Florida, it's you know, eggs are twice as much, bread is twice as much. Meat is you know, twice as much. Gas, I understand it's come down a little bit. It's, it's, it's come up. So inflation, I think, has really hit um, Americans quite a bit. And when you look at the Hispanic vote, um, they tend to be in the the middle and lower middle class um, spectrum. And so they feel that a little bit more. And they look at what Biden did with the Inflation Reduction Act or what he didn't do. They all have opinions on it. And that that's what they say they're looking at. And so that really affects their their opinion of him. So
1: what I want to I want to dig in in just a minute Rui to you know what you think will be the biggest uh the biggest determining factors for how uh how Hispanic voters uh break and what Democrats whether and how Democrats can begin to get them back if they can summon the political will to do it. But first Scott maybe you can tell us a little bit about how Republicans approach uh, polling and appealing to Hispanic voters—that you know, obviously different from from the Democratic problem that we're talking about.
3: Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I think you know, from a straight polling perspective, um, I know that the better pollsters do Spanish language polling, especially in South Florida, especially in districts in South Texas and things like that. Um, and they do do cross-tabs based on that, which Democrats do, and that should be a normal practice. But what they're finding is, is they do find there is a a, um, uh, an issues difference. If you cross-tab it on English speaking versus Spanish speaking, you do get a little bit of a different opinion on what these on what these folks think, and I think that does inform um, uh, some of the messaging. Um, what's interesting, the Republican pollsters will tell you that immigration is immigration and border security is is a big issue for those hispanic who do vote republican in other words they don't necessarily think that you know talking about a border wall or border security is going to get them 70 or 80% of the hispanic vote but it will keep, it will allow them to keep motivated the 15 to 30% some of these candidates get if that makes sense from a qualitative standpoint, I think that you're seeing a lot more Republicans at the national and at the local level do a lot of qualitative focus groups, which gives them some of the anecdotes that I talked about. Anecdotes aren't hard data, but that does help inform messaging, right? Like, I, I the the bottom line I would say here is if you see a Republican talking about border security and they're doing it, you know, uh, in a district that's Hispanic, they're not tone deaf. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. some data to support what that is, and they're not they're not trying to get 70% of the Hispanic vote. They're trying to get the fifteen to thirty percent that's definitely going to vote and is going to vote for them, and they think it's a winning strategy. And to a certain extent, I'm sure we'll talk about the data in a little bit. I mean, Ted Cruz, you know, won his election, you know, a little bit closer than he thought he would. But the reason why he won it was some of the Hispanic vote stayed with him because of the border stuff. Hmm. Um, at least in my opinion. And we look at what Trump did in South Texas and things like that in Florida. Like the, these things resonate, even if they're not majority majority opinions among the the voting bloc.
1: Mike, do you want to say a little bit more about that and how Republicans have traditionally approached the Latino vote before Rui? Then I'd love to pivot over to you and talk about um, how, how you see the path you know, toward earning some of their votes back for Democrats. Mike?
0: Yeah, so this is really important. Uh, when, when we're talking about the Latino vote, there are very few people that are making an argument that this is going to be a realignment. And, and by that, what, what I mean in a traditional realignment, we're talking, for example, like this Southern strategy, where Republicans went in and invested beginning in the late 60s, early 1970s, and started using a whole set of issues to convince um, accurately Southern Democrats that their values, their issue set, their motivators were actually more aligned with the Republican Party. And that took 25 years I'm not suggesting that the Republican Party uh, will win a majority of the Hispanic vote in my my lifetime. They may, they may not. But that's not what I'm arguing. That's not what I'm suggesting. That's not ever what I've predicated. What I'm suggesting is that the Latino vote is going to gradually take on the overall characteristics of the American electorate. And that happens incrementally, but it has tectonic impacts in terms of representation. So when Scott says there there is a rationale for the arguments that they're using the Republicans are using on border and crime and these traditional right-wing issues he's absolutely right because if Republicans pick up 2 or 3% of the vote over election cycle over election cycle that's going to have enormous impacts over over a decade in the way America's political system looks. I mean, t- look at it this way. In 2012, Barack Obama got 75% of the Hispanic vote. In 2020, eight years later, Joe Biden, he was getting in the, in, uh, uh, even lower than that. But my, my point is, if, if the ne- this next decade looks anything like the last decade, and there's a ton of data suggesting it will, you're going to see a massive movement over election period over election period away from the democratic party which is another way of saying towards the republican party incidentally they are different but what you're seeing is a lot of the breaking away from the democratic party or rejection of the democratic party and a movement towards the republican party that's what i'm suggesting is is likely to occur is this shift is not a, a, a realignment in the sense of like a, a you're really just Republicans you don't know it yet kind of the old Reagan saw, this is really a class movement an economic class development where the non-college educated blue-collar workforce is transforming from a white a white constituency year by year two or three percent year by year to a Hispanic blue collar working class and it should not surprise us that they are voting more and more alike that's what's happening that's the challenge and at some point that's the democratic party's biggest dilemma and it's something that they're going to have to address because at the current moment there's there's really this denial that it's not happening or that there's no way latinos are going to vote for republicans because they put kids in cages and want to build a wall and and that really really misses again, this seismic change in our politics that is happening, and it's not going to happen one election night on one any November 3rd. It's going to happen one or 2% every election cycle over the course of decades. And it's already it started. It started in 2012. It's shifting for the past eight years. The next eight to 10 years are going to be even more consequential. Rui, over to you.
2: Yeah, no, I agree entirely with what Mike said. I mean, I think this is a gradual change that uh, is continuing uh, through this election cycle as far as we can see. And if if it continues throughout the 2020s, we are talking about a different world. If you go from a world where Hispanics, this fast-growing constituency, increasingly influential out of states and districts, go from being a two to one Democratic group to like a 5741 Democratic group, which is quite possible, I think. That's a big change. You know, you the margin has been drastically compressed. So we still have a majority of Hispanics voting Democratic under this thought experiment, but uh, suddenly the 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 juice Democrats can squeeze out of it is radically reduced. And that just makes their whole strategy increasingly vulnerable because you know as I was saying earlier, the Democrats' implicit assumption that demographic change will deliver them a solid majority, it was always predicated on the idea that as non-whites, especially Hispanics, became a larger share of voters, uh, that they would continue to vote as they had in the past, and therefore they would derive an an unalloyed benefit from it. If, in fact, Hispanic voters move away from you fast enough to cancel out the change in their share of voters, then you're you're losing, not winning. So uh, the whole theory of the case falls apart. It really falls apart, and I think Democrats, as Mike put it, are really into denial about this. And I think one reason they're in denial about it is, well, partly people always hate to give up on something they were. It's almost become part of their ideology. But um, you know, they don't want to face the fact the party has changed, and that's a lot of the problem. Back when Democrats were cleaning up among Hispanics, it seemed like. You know the the kind of process that Mike was talking about wasn't happening, where they're becoming assimilated and their commitment to the Democrats would attenuate. It was a different party. I mean, as as we described it, an emerging Democratic majority. Democrats, to a large extent, stood for progressive centrism. They were, you know, sort of more liberal culturally than the other party, but that, that much more liberal. And they stood for, you know, trying universal uplift for for everybody. And you know, they had some some success along those lines. Um, but that was their offer to these voters, uh, as well as, of course, being somewhat more friendly to immigrants. And I think that was congenial. But once the party changes, you have the kind of dynamic that that Mike is talking about kicking in. The Democrats are no longer a culturally moderate party, but actually quite liberal to radical. That turns off Hispanics. Um Are the Democrats really oriented toward, you know, sort of lifting up the working class as a whole, of which these Hispanics are a part? One could one could question that. I mean, one reason why white working class voters, for example, grew so sharply uh, toward uh, Trump and the Republicans in 2016 is because the recovery had done relatively little for them, and they had, that was on top of decades of falling behind among working class people, particularly in certain classes, certain areas of the country. Hispanics, you know, in a sort of shorthand way, they're they're overwhelmingly a working class constituent. They're falling behind. They are not benefiting that much from the way the American economic model is working. And they don't like that. And they don't necessarily trust the Democrats at that at this point to lift them out of that. The Democrats have presided over a high inflation economy, which has eroded real wages, for not increased them. Um, and in general, that's on top of years and years and years where working class people, including especially Hispanic working class people, on average, or poor, uh, you know, sort of part of the poor sectors of the working class, have been not advancing. I mean, this is like a huge deal. If you can't close the deal with Hispanic voters, a good chunk of them, either culturally or economically, suddenly you're in trouble when previously uh, it seemed like you were just at a fault option and it was an easy choice to make. So I think that's part of what's going on. And, and look, even California Hispanics aren't aren't California Hispanics anymore. My analysis from the States of Change Project is, yeah, they started from a high level, but uh, 2016 compared to 2020, there was a huge swing uh, toward Trump among Hispanic working class voters in, Cali- in California, as far as I can tell. Um, so, you know, it could be on the order of 15 or 20 points. So it's actually consistent, I would say, with national trend that Hispanics, even in California, were moving away from, from the Democrats. So I think all that is, you know, flashing warning signs for the Democrats, but flashing warning signs that is my Stress are not really being taken that seriously. They think, well, you know, if uh, they'll come to their senses, they'll realize how awful the Republicans are, even while the Democrats are running a campaign that's primarily designed to appeal to white-collar educated voters. It's all about abortion and, you know, stopping uh, the fascist threat at the gates from Trumpism, which is, you know, will work in some places, but I don't think that's what working-class Hispanic voters care the most about. Full stop.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if those numbers actually work for Democrats because the other shift that's happening right now that we haven't really talked about is the shift of white college educated voters toward Democrats. Right. And, and I wonder if, you know, first of all, numbers wise, are there enough votes if, if that trend continues for them to, to continue to hold a, a, you know, a competitive coalition together? Um, and, and if not, uh, you know, what would it take for them to address that dilemma head on what would it look like i get that there's no political will to do that right now for you know for other for lots of different reasons but you know is there you know i'm not asking you to predict the future but if they were to actually look at square in the eyes and and say okay we have to deal with this what what would that look like for the democratic party what would need to change
2: Well, I have a modest three-point plan for the Democrats, (laughs) which would would, uh, definitely help, I think, with uh, Hispanic voters, particularly working-class voters. One, move to the center on cultural issues. Two, embrace or promote an abundance agenda that actually helps working-class people far beyond action on climate change and spending a lot of money. And three, embrace uh, patriotism and liberal nationalism. Rebrand the party as being for all Americans. Uh, lifting them up, sort of a great national campaign to transform the economy in a way that really benefits working class people. Uh, and I think that would, that would help. You know, I think the Democrats have tried the racial framing. Now they're trying the climate change framing. You know, why not go back to the uh, original, the patriotic framing, the nationalist framing? Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be everybody has to be white Americans. I loved Albert Murray's famous book about the omni-Americans. We're all omni-Americans. We're all... White, Black, Hispanic—we're, you know, variety of different ethnicities and cultural things melded into one, and that's who we are. We're Americans, but we're Omni-Americans, uh, as you know. Mike was writing about the Latinization of, of of America. That's that's part of it. Um, so anyway, uh, that's just very broad strokes, but I think if Democrats ostentatiously moved in that direction, it would help them with uh, Hispanic voters in general. In particular, with voters voters in general, will they do it? I don't know. I think you got to, like most parties, have to be hit on the head with it before they really change. I thought 2020 should have been pretty good along those lines because of the underperformance and some of the voter trends we've been talking about. We'll see what happens in 2022. I think for various reasons, it's at least possible the Democrats will limp through this election, but not nearly as bad an outcome as they thought, which we will be. Both to change, even though it was not a good outcome, right? And don't forget, the House Caucus will probably become more liberal because the people don't lose. And then you're looking at 2024. So I would think that the, the smart strategist in the Democratic Party would think, okay, we actually could lose the election, and that would be really bad. So we really have to do some things different. Um, maybe we need our sister soldier type moments on some of this stuff because. We're not, you know, they're not buying what we're selling in in large areas of the country that we really need. Um, But I I certainly wouldn't predict the future about that. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, never underestimate parties' ability to do stupid things.
1: Mike, I remember you saying uh, repeatedly the party that emerges with a Multiracial, multicultural coalition is the party that will dominate for the next 10,
0: 20 years. And that's really what's at stake here, isn't it? Well, it's really a multi-ethnic working class.
1: Yeah. Like
0: whoever's, right. whoever's able to comprise the working class in a multi-ethnic way, which is what, what Roy's three-point plan essentially is, is, is saying, then you're going to win. Look, a, a good way to look at this conflict within the Democratic Party is 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 the um is if you took the building and construction trades unions a core pillar of the democratic party the, what, what, you know the, the democratic party used to be the working man's party I think it's debatable at this point. but the, the building construction trades, plumbers, pipe fitters, electrical workers you know con- you know laborers th- these are rapidly rapidly becoming latino workers and and their mortal enemy by the way is the Sierra Club. This Sierra club is 85% white college educated <laughs> environmentalists, right? This is the battle in the Democratic Party. It's the inability of this kind of unholy coalition that doesn't really agree on much economically or the future is in the Democratic Party for the moment, for the moment they have had the commonality of hating Republicans. That was the glue that bound them together. But now, this working class you know, movement towards the Republican Party is also taking on a racial and ethnic overtone because the, the working class is more multi ethnic, more racial than, than the, certainly than the environmental movement. And that tension I'm not making a judgment calling any of these policy issues. I'm just an observer saying, look at what's going on. You've got an environmental community, which is 85% white, and, and, and a blue collar working class, which in very short order is going to look you know, a majority black and brown, your economic issues are in direct conflict. They're they're not like, okay, we can live with each other in coalition because we hate Republicans for much longer. We're in direct conflict with each other. One of us is in the wrong party. And that's the challenge (laughs) for the Democrats, right? Is to hold that coalition together as long as it can. And it's losing margins. It's slipping. It's like the fingers are, are, are sliding down the cliff. I think the Republicans are benefiting in, in large part at this moment, despite itself, candidly. There's a lot of a lot of this movement isn't just pro Republican. It's as much and maybe anti Democrat is too strong a term, but it's they don't relate to the Democrats anymore, culturally, they don't relate to them. Economically, they're in conflict. And you throw in that patriotic element, right? This 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 commonality that Roy is talking about very accurately. Um, at least the rhetoric, if if not the practice of Republicans, speaks to that a little bit. And so th- this this shift should not be that surprising when you understand it that way. Um, and, I, and I'm hoping that these two pillars, the, the Sierra Club versus the construction trades, really should bring home what the conflict is in the Democratic Party and why it's having trouble keeping these voters. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, as, as I say, I really agree with Mike on all this. I think that People in the de- in and around the Democratic Party drastically underestimate how important the disconnect is between the fervent support for environmental climate change-focused economic approach. You know the disconnect that creates with working-class voters, for whom you know climate change is not a high salience issue for these voters. It's just not. I mean, if you ask them about it, they'll say, "Yeah, we should do something about it. The renewable energy is great." Blah blah blah, but. You know, it, it doesn't have the, the cachet with them, the almost obsessive force it does with, with uh, the liberal elites who, who dominate the Democratic Party and the activists and the foundations and what have you. I mean, you cannot talk to anyone in those spaces who does not believe that climate change is the issue that we must orient all our policies around and transform the U.S. economy as fast as we can, regardless of any other effects. And the fact of the matter is for working class voters, it actually really matters what the price of energy is and what the disruption to their jobs and stuff like that. They live in the real world. I mean, yeah, I mean, it'd be great to do something about climate change, but leave my jobs and my prices alone. And I just think that there's a lot of hand-waving in democratic circles about, oh, well, that's not really a problem. Don't get over it. Or alternatively, basically arguing there will be no bad effects, which I think is, is not really a plausible line of argument. At the current time, given other developments, so so I think this is really it's it's really a fascinating you know sort of area, and in a way brings home more than any other strict policy area the disjuncture between democratic policy commitments and working class preferences. Um, and believe me, having lived in that world for quite a while, it's really hard to argue people out of this. I mean, it really is. It's just a matter. It's a matter of faith. It's it's a quasi religion. You know, I mean, you don't have to be a climate change denier to think that there's something a little weird about about the force with which this has taken over the minds of so many people in uh, in, in Democratic circles.
3: I, haven't,
1: I saw you nodding along. Yeah. Yeah, I ahead.
3: haven't seen any crosstabs, but I bet they exist. And if they don't exist, maybe I'll get DDHQ News Nation to do it. If we asked um, registered voters simply, what are they most worried about over the next 30 years? Right. And gave a whole list of issues, everything from climate change to economy to ability for my children to be better off than me. Well, a whole list of generic things. Uh, I I don't know what it'd be in the top line, but I bet I bet if we we cross tabbed it by ethnicity or cross tabbed it by income or cross tabbed it by both. It would support the point that Mike and Roy have been talking about is, look, if you're a Hispanic voter, it's not that you don't want clean air, or cheaper energy. You're just much more worried that your kids are going to go to college or have a job. Or you know be able to afford the gas, whereas the people who are tend to be a little bit more um, you know fervent about climate change. And if we went further, they, they 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 some of them think the world might end in twenty or thirty years. Um, but they tend to be a little bit mid to upper income, and they they've already got the job, they've already got the college education, they've got those things. And so it is it it, it would line up that way. I'll have to look. I bet there's some crosstabs that are pretty close to this. You know Pew asked some really good stuff but that would be a real good future one and i it, it shouldn't be surprising anyone to see some of that kind of data i mean we see it on the worldwide level too right like the reason why china doesn't care about climate change is cuz they're trying to build an economy you know they're like look the us you had you had the 20th century to build any factory next to any 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 watering source and dump anything there we're going to do that first and then we'll worry about it later and and that's just, you know, the macro view of it is let's 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 get to a point where we can afford to worry about climate change is I think where a lot of these people are coming from. Whether it's good or bad is a different question, but that is how they're thinking.
1: So there's been uh, you know, just to bring it back to the current election cycle, where we're right around the corner from the midterms, there has been some back and forth movement. Over the last couple of months, and, uh, and I'm wondering what are some of the assumptions about Hispanic voting patterns that you expect to get broken during this midterm cycle? Whether you know whether there will be any lessons learned um, from from what happens, um, and uh, and sort of whether the, whether this is going to be a turning point, whether the midterms will be a turning point, or if this is going to be sort of a slow, gradual uh, debate that happens. Uh, within the within the party
0: infrastructures, I mean, I'll jump in if that's okay, Roy, real quick. I mean, look, I, I, the parties have already changed. I think 2022 is the year where the math finally caught up with them. And when all of when you're looking at all the competitive House seats, um, I think 20 of them have 20 percent Hispanic registration or above. That's 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 crazy. Like it's never been that much. I mean, most of the redistricting. You know, we used to have a lot of Hispanic districts. The population is too big for that now. There, there are more Latino voters in Wisconsin than there are African-American voters, right? Telemundo just came out with a poll today showing that Oz is getting 35% of the Hispanic vote. Like That, that means they're polling Latinos in Pennsylvania, by the way, right? So, so, you know, look at the states where there's competitive Senate seats. North Carolina, Hispanic vote will be larger than the margin of, of, of victory there. Florida, of course, that's an obvious one. Texas. I mean, Beto O'Rourke is, is, is not getting the same Hispanic performance that he was four years ago. Um, and, and, and so the, the narrative has changed from just 40 years ago or even two years ago, where it was like, you know, um, Democrats are going to win the Hispanic vote to now it's whether or not Hispanics are voting for the Republican in the high 30s or low 40s. That that is an incredibly big shift that people aren't really putting into perspective. Like that, that is enormous. Nevada, you know, if if the republic, if Laxalt's getting 40% of the Hispanic vote, it's over. It's way over. Yeah. It's over. <laughs> uh. and, and most of the polling is showing that that's the range. If Oz is at 35%, you know, he's he's in the low single digits. He's in the hunt against Fetterman. And he is, right? And again, Beto's losing by seven. Right at this point. He, you know, Abbott is Abbott is in the low 40s right now and closing with the Hispanic vote. It's like the evidence is everywhere. It's everywhere. And I said, people keep looking, it's like, oh, well, we're not losing the Hispanic vote because we're not at 50% yet. It's like, yeah, but four years, it's ago, about six the margin. years ago. Yeah, four years ago, six years ago, you were getting 70%. Now
3: you're like 58, it's not bad. Like, no, that's bad. <laughs> As Democrats, it's really bad. <laughs> and that has some implications for 24, right? You bring up Abbott. Like I, Abbott is already setting himself up for, you know, it looks like he's going to beat Beto. And the question is, is he going to have a better margin than Ted Cruz did? And that's, that's an interesting inside baseball thing, you know, you take your either way, but if you're Abbott, you're looking for the Hispanic vote. Cause that is going to be one of your things if he looks like he might run for president, you know, in 2024, he's going to talk about, "Hey, I did these flights things. I've been doing all this other stuff. And look, I'm the first governor since George W. Bush to get north of 30 percent of Hispanic vote. And oh, by the way, I got more of it. I grew it. I got more than Beto O'Rourke. Like, I mean, this is going to be a talking point in the Republican primary for people like uh, for people like Ted Cruz and 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 Abbott out of Texas." Um certainly Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis as well, but 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 they're gonna push more of the Texas stuff. That's that's gonna be on their credentials as they run.
1: Rui, I want to know if there's anything, you know, uh, if if the if we should hope for any significant conversations to happen as a result of the midterms, if these numbers do hold true within the within the democratic leadership and ecosystem. Um and whether, whether it does any good for, you know, people listening, let's say to, you know, email cap or email the DNC or write and say, Hey, you guys need to be paying attention to this. Right. Um, if there's more public pressure and awareness, uh, cause I don't know about, you, I, I, I would like Democrats to win right now. Um, <laughs> you know, because there's just too much at stake, uh, at the moment. And, um and the Republican party has lost its ever loving mind. And, um, and we really can't afford for this to happen. So, you know, to what extent will there be any, um, any, uh, you know, reflection, sincere, sincere reflection, do you think after this, after this election? And is there anything, um, any, any particular direction that people should point their feedback, concerns, et cetera?
2: Yeah, well, to kind of game this out, I mean, I think that if, uh, the Democrats hold the Senate and actually hold the House, there will be no rethinking. I mean, that's a low probability event, but no rethinking if that happens, almost regardless of anything else. Now, if the Democrats manage to keep their you know, hold on the Senate and they lose the House by 10 or 15, they lose 10 or 15 seats in the House, so that is a very narrow Republican majority, I think. That will lead to more calls for rethinking, but uh, not as many as would be useful, I think, in this context, looking toward 2024. If the Democrats lose the Senate and the House, then I think they're more in rethinking territory, where particularly if we combine that with what looks to be these ongoing trends in the Hispanic vote, I mean, if we see five, seven, eight margin points being lost again off the Hispanic vote, in a lot of places are wrong, I think you, you got more of an entree into a discussion about. What are we doing wrong? <laughs> Why can't we do any better? Why are we losing Hispanic voters? What about the working class? Maybe we've gone too far in a lot of respects. Maybe we really do need to rebrand ourselves in some ways. Um and I think it's great for people to raise their voices about that. write to whoever you want. You know if you're the kind of person who writes, you know write stuff that sort of tries to hit the Democrats to some of the things that they're doing wrong. I mean, it's time for people to get out of their friggin' partisan corners, even if they are Democrats or democratic-oriented, and sort of speak truth about what the hell's going on here. Um it's not adequate just to say the Republicans are, you know, tools of Satan and the fascists are at the gates and they're going to take away, you know, everybody's rights and, you know, including women, gay people, blah blah. I mean, that may <laughs> that may be somewhat useful as a talking point and there is even some truth to it in some ways, but um, though, of course, somewhat exaggerated, but uh, you know that's not going to be enough. I mean, you've got to face the fact you cannot build a majoritarian coalition with the backs of liberal white college-educated voters. It's not going to work. And you know, the, the, the extent to which the 2022 election has results that are consistent with that claim, I think the better your entree into that debate will be. But I don't think... Sort of regardless of the outcome, I think any reasonable look at the electoral landscape of the country, the influence of rural and working class voters, you know, the relationship of that to the Senate um, and the Senate map in twenty twenty four, the very real possibility that we're still a, we're, we're still going to be a closely divided country. Do you really want Donald Trump to be president again? I think all this should should sort of propel people forward into not being. You know, afraid to make criticisms and not being afraid to say really different things need to happen at this time. We are not, we don't have the winning formula here. We have a limping along formula. And the problem with limping along is eventually you may fall in your face. So uh, that would be my advice. Everybody should raise their voices uh, who has questions and issues along these lines. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll see what kind of a atmosphere it is after the election. I mean, the worst it is for the Democrats, the easier it'll be to make these arguments. So we'll see what happens.
1: I hope it doesn't come to that. But
2: yeah, I mean know. it's kind of a yeah. it's kind of yeah. right. position to be in. Yeah.
1: This is this is the way parties learn lessons. Gentlemen, I uh, I want to be mindful of our time. And before we all uh, depart here, any closing thoughts? Um anything else that's brought
0: up for you that you wanna you wanna mention, Mike? Yeah, I just want to say, I mean, this is this is in many ways unprecedented in terms of a demographic change for the country. We've always dealt with different ethnicities, we've always dealt with the absorption of different immigrant groups and non-white, you know, European um, communities. But the size and scope of this change, I think, is really is really going to uh, be determinative on how healthy or unhealthy our democracy is, and really test. Some of the fundamental mythologies of 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 the American experiment, which is you know, is can we really be pluralistic country? Can can, can it really work? It's it's easy to say that we have these certain inalienable rights available to all of us when you're an 85% white, you know, Anglo-Saxon Protestant country. It's only when you're not that the theory is really tested, (laughs) and we're not going to be in, in in pretty short order, at least. In terms of our history, uh, uh, you know, by the end of most of our lifetimes, whites will become a non-majority. There'll be a plurality, but there won't be a majority. will be a will be a non-white majority country, and and that moment I think is really going to test the, a lot of these assumptions we've always made about the American experiment. is 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 Are we really a country of of ideas? Is is America really an idea, or have the common bounds of, of biology and ideology? Really been what it's about the whole time. We're gonna we're gonna test that theory in a lot of ways, and, and in many ways, I think we're fortunate that you have the Hispanic community emerging as the fastest growing block because, by definition, we're we're, we're mixed race people. <laughs> we're, we're old world and new world, and that has been kind of our cultural superpower: is we navigate both. We're not we're not of one aggrieved racial minority or another. We're not a, a typical or atypical. You know, immigrant group. It, it's It's unique. and there's 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 a certain strength, I think, that could actually make us a better nation if we commit to those ideals in a way that is accepting and ingratiating of a multi-ethnic community um, without the racial identity, without without the need to focus on 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 um, the, this this peculiar, unfortunate place we've gotten into. In America in at this moment where um where where, where we stoke racial uh, differences as opposed to as to use them as a uniting force, Scott, any thoughts before we go?
3: No, just other than you know this is this is going to be a recurring topic for the next three or four election cycles um and it, it has been for the last four or five, right? We've been talking about this. I remember when, um, you know, the Democrats started battleground Texas cause they're going to flip, flip Texas blue by 2022. And, you know, it looks like Texas is going to ha- have, you know, three statewide office holders and still a Republican supermajority. Um, in other words that the narrative didn't necessarily go the way they wanted, but as Mike said, and Roy pointed out, we've pointed out like the, the demographic is growing and they're diverse and they vote different depending on the state they're in their geography or what their background is. And so this is, this is the, uh, this is going to be the demographic um, cohort that's going to be focused on in campaigns. And so we're going to see more money on it. We're going to see more um, messaging for it. Um, And I don't think it's going to go the way either party thinks it's going to go, right? Like, you know, the Democrats are not going to get 70% of the Hispanic vote forever, which is what they thought they were going to get back in 2016 when they started investing in this stuff. Um, And the Republicans are probably not going to get to 50, 55% of the Hispanic vote just by talking about border security. And so, you know, it's going to have to require some some evolving and things like that. And I think that'll be interesting. And, you know, the one point I always like to bring up, and I think Mike said it a little bit earlier, but I'll put a finer point on it. Like these races, especially the ones decided by five points, you don't need a majority of a voting block to win. You just need to move at five or 10%. And we don't see a whole lot of blocks that move five or 10 percent, but we have seen Hispanic voters move five or 10 percent to the Republicans in the last couple cycles. That's rare. You don't see that in the in the Asian-American vote. You don't see that. You know, the other place we saw that would be um, uh, non-college educated whites. Right. Which is another thing we talk about a lot. But like the, these movements of five or 10 points, which are the difference maker in these races, they're few and far between. And the Hispanic vote is one of them. And So it's it's not going to go away. It's going to be a thing. Rui? Closing thoughts?
2: Yeah, I agree with Scott. Um, I think uh, you know, it's time for Democrats to stop thinking about Hispanics as people of color and start thinking about them as omni-Americans and working class omni-Americans at that. I think from that, much wisdom will flow and the potential for political success. Because as Mike's pointing out, this, this evolution of the Hispanic population is like a huge deal transformational potentially. It's just not transformational in the way Democrats quite thought it would be or must become. And I think they need to wake up to that fact and embrace it for what it is.
1: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.